Thanks. As Steve said, I'm reading Psalm 145, which is on page 447 of the Bibles. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. The second reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 13 on page 813. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then where shall we see face to face? Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Thanks, man.
Good evening, friends. Whoa, good evening. Um, tonight, uh, we've finished our series in Ezekiel, and tonight we um, start just a couple of weeks. Uh, this week, I'm preaching on 1 Corinthians 13 and love, uh, and then uh, next week, uh, Tim Clemens, who's an assist, well, a student minister over at Lavender Bay, he's going to be coming to preach to us. You'll get to meet him. Um, great guy. Um, he's going to preach on the second half of John 2. Um, but tonight, we're looking at the title... I want to know what love is. And you can sing the song. Um, I'm going to pray uh, that God would actually give us the answer to that, that, that song title, I want to know what love is. Let's pray together. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we would see Jesus tonight. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we would hear Jesus tonight. And our gracious Heavenly Father, who gives us everything we need, we pray that we would love Jesus this night. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. According to the Beatles, it's all we need. According to Bert Bacharach and Hal David, it's what the world needs now. According to Deepak Chopra, I quote him, he says, it's the ultimate truth at the heart of the creation. So much has been sung about it, so much has been written about it, so much has been thought about this particular experience. And it's the experience, it's the greatest of the Christian virtues, love. But what is love? Has anyone actually asked you that question before? What is love? When I was a physiotherapist, I had a patient on the table. I sort of bring up these stories all the time. She was had her head down the hole. She's a bit of a philosopher, and she said, Simon, tell me what love is. And you'd think, having gone to Bible college, I'd have some kind of answer for her, wouldn't you? But I just sort of kept working on her neck and kind of, tell me what love is. What do we mean by the word love? How would we define it? How would you describe the word love, the experience of love? How do you tell the difference between real love and kind of fake love? Real love? fake love? How do you tell the difference? Now, these questions have occupied the minds and people have written books and books and books, but indeed they have, at a more popular level, been the subjects of so many songs, haven't they? Turn on Nova, turn on whatever, and you'll hear a song about love. What is love? You could sing it. Where is love? Teach me how to love, and of course, the greatest of all love songs. Foreigner, 1984, I want to know what love is. You, know, you heard it just before. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I know you can show me. That's the impassioned plea of the lead singer of Foreigner. But if there's one thing in our history, in our long history of human relationships, it tells us that we don't really know what love is. If we do know what love is, I reckon we're pretty awful at putting it into practice. I was talking to a guy once and he said to me, why do I always, you might resonate with this, why do I always seem to hurt the people that I love the most? And his response was that I think all the time I kind of seem to be using people rather than truly loving people, manipulating people. Friends, if we really, we do need to know what love is. We need to know what love is if we're going to be faithful Christians in this world. 
We need to know what love is. We need to know the difference between truly loving people or just simply manipulating people for the sake of our own good. We're going to serve Jesus. We need to know what love is. Here's my statement for tonight. Love, we can't live without it. We can't live without it. The only way we're going to know what love is is if, if we actually come to it and are taught by God himself about what love is because God is love. God is love. The best place to go, perhaps, is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, arguably one of the greatest chapters on love in the Bible, perhaps arguably one of the greatest chapters of the Bible altogether. But have a look at me. Open up 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's where we're going to hang tonight. I just want to say three quick things as we come to 1 Corinthians 13 before we sort of tuck into the actual text. 1 Corinthians 13 has a specific context. It comes after chapter 12 and it comes before chapter 14. Amazing, isn't it? But that section, 12, 13, 14, is talking about how do we use the gifts that God has given by his spirit to the church? It's not just a text about love and life in general. It's not just a text about love and marriage in general. It has a very specific context, that being the church of God, those who call themselves Christians and gather together on nights like Saturday night, a very particular context. How do we use the gifts that God has given us rightly for the sake of building up each other? That's what chapter 13 is in the middle of chapter 12 and 14 for. Unless we appreciate this, how it speaks to this particular scenario, then we actually might miss the real depth of meaning of what love truly is. But secondly, at the end of chapter 12, if you flick back with me to chapter 12, uh, Paul sets up chapter 13 with two statements. The first statement is a, a statement of encouragement. Uh, he writes, And now I, uh, but eagerly desire, chapter thir- verse 31, but eagerly desire the greater gifts, which means pursuing the gifts that prove most effective for the building up of each other as Christian people in the church. Uh, in chapter 14, verse 1, Paul begins, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. And he goes on to say that eagerly desire the greater gifts, which is ultimately going to be the gift of love. And then Paul says again in verse 31 of chapter 12, and now I will show you the most excellent way. In other ways, there's there's something even more important than working out which gifts are going to do the greatest amount of good for the greatest number of people something greater than the gifts of the Spirit, something more lasting and useful than them alone. A more excellent way is the excellent way of love. That's what Paul sets it up. There's a context, and Paul says, eagerly desire the greater gifts. I'll show you a more excellent way, and the most excellent way is that of the way of love. So come with me now and have a look with me at chapter 13. I hope we're sort of on the same page. Chapter 13, verse 1. Paul wants us to understand that for any gift that God gives to his church to have any lasting significance, lasting meaning and usefulness around the church needs to be experienced in the ne- with the necessity of love. Have a look with me. Uh, verse 1. Paul says, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, 
but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, surrender even my body to the flames, but have not love, Paul says, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. Without love, nothing. Paul's point is that to speak in any kind of tongue, he says here, is utterly pointless without love. Likewise, you might be the greatest preacher on the planet. You might be, you might be sitting here tonight and you might have the greatest theological mind the world has ever seen. You actually might be the most generous giver the world, the church has ever known. You might be so philanthropic that we would just go, wow. You might even join the ranks of missionary martyrs for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does Paul say? If you're doing all that without love, it's meaningless. Nothing. It's all meaningless. Love is absolutely necessary in Christian life and in the life of the church. If it's necessary, though, it begs the question, what exactly is this love that is so necessary in the Christian church, so utterly indispensable that we can't live without it? What does it look like? How do we recognize real love versus fake love? What's its character? Have a look at me in verses 4 and 7. Paul brings out the description of the character and the characteristics of love. Verse 4, love is, these are so well known, aren't they? These are beautiful words. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. Always perseveres. I think the first thing to note here as Paul describes the character of love is just how practical love is. How practical it is, which of course reflects the practicality of love itself. You see, it's all very well to philosophize about what love is in the abstract, but real love is never theoretical. It always takes on action. It always does stuff. Like Forrest Gump's famous phrase, stupid is as stupid does. Love is as love does does certain things that expresses itself. Likewise, it does other, doesn't do other things as to contradict itself. Love is a way. It is practical. So I think Foreigner, back in 1984, when they wrote that splendid song, are onto something. When they say, I want to know what love is, that's our question. And then they say, I want you to show me. I want you to show me, act out what love is. You can understand this if you're married, if you have a spouse. You know, I know from personal experience, when I'm told, I don't just want you to tell me that you love me. I want you to show me that you love me. The four love languages books comes to mind. I don't know if you've engaged in that. Because it's easy to talk the talk of love, but it's actually harder to walk the walk of love, to put love into action. But friends, walking is required when it comes to love. Not just talking about love, but actually walking love, doing love, practical love. That's the most excellent way that Paul wants to uphold here. So what does love do? Uh, Paul gives a bit of a list here, doesn't he, of what love does. It's not exhausting, it's not an exhaustive list, but it's a list nonetheless. And at the top of that list is patience. 
I recall many years ago hearing a woman once say, I was sort of eavesdropping, confession. She said, I have all the fruits of the Spirit except patience. I felt like sort of dropping into her conversation and saying, you know what, love is patient. So if you don't have patience, maybe you don't have love either. I didn't think that would be very edifying for her or building her up, so I refrained from saying that. But be that as it may, what does it mean to be patient? What does it mean to be a patient lover? Well, it's got to do with time, doesn't it? Time. With having time, taking time, giving time to others. Involves waiting for people to catch up or actually waiting for people even to kind of catch on to what's going on. Waiting without getting frustrated or criticising them or making people feel silly or useless. That's why patience is really closely related to kindness, as Paul writes, which is Paul's second word. For being kind means being generous, being gracious, being helpful, being selfless. You can't actually be kind to others, can you, if all you are is concerned about yourself. You can't be generous to others if all you're consumed by is your needs, your situation, your circumstances. Kindness requires self-denial. True self-denial is one of the many aspects of the sacrifices of love. A little while ago, I came across a poem written by an eight-year-old boy. In a rather unexpected way, it captures something of the love to which Paul is speaking about. Uh, the, the title of this little guy's poem was Everyone Should Try to Have a Grandma. These are the words. These are great words. A grandmother is a lady who has no children of her own, so she likes other people's boys and girls. Grandmas don't have anything to do, only be there. If they take us for walks, they slow down past pretty leaves and caterpillars. They never say, hurry up. They're usually fat but not too fat to tie our shoes. They answer questions like, why do dogs hate cats? And why isn't God married? Everyone should try to have a grandma, especially if you don't have a television. Grandmas are the only grown-ups who always have time. Isn't it priceless? I think it's priceless. I think it's beautiful because it tells a story. A story of patience, a a story of kindness, a story of love. The love that this grandmother had for him, that he had experienced and was profoundly shaped by and shaped his understanding of what love is and that love is kind and that love is patient. But that's not all that love is, nor all that love does. You'll probably read that for the rest of the time if I don't take it off. Can someone flick that off for me? Beautiful, there we go. It's not all that love does. Verse 7 speaks of the resilience of love. For love, we're told, bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It perseveres. In other words, real love has nothing to do with superficial sentimentality. Rather, it's gutsy, it's determined, it's broad-shouldered, it's persevering, it takes the long view and love never gives up. I'm sure you've figured out 
already, if not long ago, that you can't survive long in the Christian life without love, this kind of resilient love. You can't. There are just too many disappointments, too many heartaches, too many wounds, too many betrayals as we walk this life. But love absorbs all that and it keeps going. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it perseveres. That is real love. And it's really important to be clear, as Paul speaks about love here, he's not talking about like the power of positive thinking that sort of overcomes any circumstance. No, no, it's more than that. He's talking about sustained sacrifice, about grace that goes the distance, love that stands by people despite their silliness and slowness and stubbornness and frustrations. It's long-suffering. In fact, as verse 8 tells us, it's never-ending. I guess this begs the question for us all, where does such love come from? Where do we see this love, a love like this? We sung it before, didn't we? We saw of a love that the world has never known, the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where this kind of love comes from, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and as Saviour. In doing so, coming to know the transforming power of God's Holy Spirit that makes us more like Jesus. Jesus was patient, kind, loving. Walked the walk with people who turned their back on him. That's love. One of the ways we grow in our knowledge of God's love in Christ is through prayer. That's why Paul prayed like this. Hear these words in Ephesians. For this reason, Paul says, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray out of his goodness, his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in the love of Christ, may have power together with all the saints, everyone who is a Christian, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know, know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That is love. We know love because God has loved us in the Lord Jesus Christ. God himself came into the world, laid his life down for us, Sinners, put up with us, went the distance with us, and he promises to go the distance with us until we meet him face to face. That is love. We learn love not by reading power of positive thinking books, dwelling on it philosophically. We learn it practically through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, the power of that love is transferred to us through the Spirit of God such that we can love like this. That's what love is. But what isn't love? What doesn't love do? Have a look with me at the text. Uh, Verse 5, verse 4. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Notice firstly there, love doesn't envy. 
Love doesn't envy. I went to dictionary.com. They told me that envy is this, a desire to have a quality, possession or other desirable attribute belonging to someone else. The shorter definition, a desire for oneself, something possessed or enjoyed by another. And let's be honest, this kind of desire is, well, something we're all really familiar at, envying others. The person who truly loves does not envy because we're secure in the love of God. That's why we don't envy. Secure in the love of God, that God himself laid his life down for us. Secure in that love means we're thankful for all that God gives us. And therefore we don't worry about what everyone else has got. We don't covet what everyone else has got. We don't envy those things. We actually can rejoice gladly with them for the possessions and the gifts that they've been given. We don't envy it because we're content in the love of God. We don't envy. But envy is, well, it's the root of so much sin and jealousy and ultimately all sorts of awful things in our world. The progression from envy to evil thoughts, to hatred, to slander, to theft, to murder is as old as Cain. King David got involved in it. The Lord Jesus died because of it. In a recent article on envy and homicide, a guy called Dr. Ken Isold comments, as he looked at a number of criminological studies, uh, that so often the motivation for envy is, we'll have a look with me on the slide, envy is the culprit. Jealousy drives those who suffer from it to idealise the other, relentlessly devaluing themselves. That's bad enough, but envy drives them to destroy the other. They have to maim and kill because the other serves as an intolerable reminder of their own failure and inadequacy. I think the standout then is envy drives them to destroy the other. But love drives us to build up the other. Love drives us to build up the other. The only solution to our envy is love. Love, the love of God, because love does not envy. It doesn't insist, verse 5, on its own way. Nothing can ruffle real love because we are safe in the love of God. It is not irritable. It is not easily angered real love, as Paul goes on to say. You ever find yourself getting irritated by people? Like genuinely irritated? Usually we think it's because they're annoying. They're the ones that are irritating me. And sometimes they are. But the truth of the matter is this. When we get irritated by others, it's because we're not loving others. We're not loving others. We've failed to love them. The NIV goes on, he says it, it, no, it, love keeps no record of wrong. You know, I'm told that when husbands and wives argue, the argument runs something like this. Why did you say that to me? Why did you say that to me? Well, I remember you said such and such to me, and I remember that when you did that or you didn't do that. That's, I'm, I'm told that, at least. That's what husbands and wives do. You know, we remember these things. In other words, we have this detailed dossier of all the things that people have done against us and when it's a right time, we pull it out and we throw it at them and say, there you go, that's why I'm justified in my position. Do you sometimes do that with people at church? 
pull out the record of wrongdoings that someone's done against you. Love doesn't do that. Jesus didn't do that at the cross. He did. He, what he did with it on the cross was just crucified. All our wrongdoings against God were put upon the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Cancelled our record of sin so that we might be forgiven. Clean slate. Forgiveness is what marks true love. Forgiveness marks true love. Well, there are some of the things that love does, some of the things that love doesn't, but Paul's not finished yet. Let me throw, I'll fly through with you verses 8 to 13. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, that'll pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfect, the perfection comes the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, when I grew up, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Paul's saying there, when the Lord Jesus Christ himself returns, there'll be no more need for prophesying. There'll be no more need for tongues. There'll be no more need for the gifts of the Spirit. In fact, he actually says, hope will no longer be needed because we'll see our hope face to face. Faith will be no more needed because we'll see our hope and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. But what remains? Love remains. When the perfect comes, When Jesus Christ returns to bring us back to him, to raise the dead in their graves, to meet us in the air and take us to glory forever and ever, what endures? Love endures. Love is the greatest. Desire love above all other things. Love is practical. Walk in love. Brothers and sisters, walk in love. It's practical. Don't just talk about it. Do it. Love each other. Cancel those wrongdoings. Forgive each other. Tonight's a great night to make up with someone. If you're holding this account of debt against them and you're saying you've done this, this, that and that, go and just forgive them. Give it to God. And love. In the year 1738... I wasn't born then. Jonathan Edwards published a book of sermons under the title Charity and Its Fruits. In it, he asked this question. What can make the church, this is a great question, what can make the church a little bit more like heaven? What can make you and I a bit more like heaven? It's a great question. He was soaked in scripture. His answer was the same as Paul's. Love. And this, of course, is why Jesus, on the eve of his crucifixion, spoke to his closest friends, his disciples. And he said to them, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You can't fake that love. Real love. You can fake heaps of other things, but you can't fake this love. Not for the long haul. 
So brothers and sisters, if we're going to be faithful disciples of Christ, if we're going to be fruitful for the gospel, we must love each other. Let me finish before I pray with the words of Jonathan Edwards. Our subject, that's love, exhorts us to seek a spirit of love, to grow in it more and more, and very much to abound in the works of love. If love is so great a thing in Christianity, so essential and distinguishing, yea, the very sum of all Christian virtue, then surely those that profess themselves Christians should live in love and abound in the works of love. For no works are so becoming as those of love. 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 I want to know what love is. Let's thank God that he's shown us tonight. Let's pray. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you have loved us before we loved you. We were your enemies. We were sinners. Yet you loved us such that you came from heaven to earth, from earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave. Father, we thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, love caused him to be weary, to be hungry, to be tempted, scorned, scourged, spat on and crucified. Love led our Lord Jesus Christ to bow his head in death for us. Help us to love like the Lord Jesus. Help us to love you and others more than we love ourselves for the sake of your glory and your renown. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.